I wonder who you consider to be the most valuable sort of Christian. Who are the most valuable Christians? What sort of person is most useful for a church? Or which sort of Christian is God most pleased to have on board? I wonder who you would think that kind of person might be. Perhaps you think it's the wealthy people, wealthy Christians. The Christian businessman who's very successful in his job, who's got a lot of money in his account and he's very generous with it and supports a number of gospel works with the money that he has. Perhaps you consider it's those who are from strong families. Uh, The husband and wife who are both Christians, who love one another deeply, and who make their home a place of welcome and hospitality in the church. Their children are believers, and they profess faith, and they're obedient. Their whole family life is a model of Christian living. Maybe those are the people you think are most valuable. Maybe it's those with a strong intellect. The people who know uh, lots about God's word, how to understand it, how to read it. They know about other religions and how to argue against them. Perhaps they know about church history. They've got lots of examples of the way Christians have lived in the past. Perhaps those are the people you think are most valuable. Or perhaps it's those who've got the most time to serve. Or certain abilities to serve in different ways. These, those sorts of people who are always round at the church doing little jobs, perhaps jobs that not many other people see. They just give so much time in service to the church and the people in the church. The people who are there at almost every meeting. The people who spend time with other people during the week visiting. Maybe those are the people you think are most valuable. Maybe as I give those examples, you see yourself slot into one of those categories. Maybe you think, okay, I'm not the one with the most money, but I've got quite a bit of time. And you make that your ministry. To make yourself valuable to the church by trying to excel in that one particular area. Perhaps that's your contribution to the church, and that's the reason we should be thankful for you. Maybe, as I read those different examples... You don't see the way you excel, you just see the way that you fail in each one of them. You just feel that you don't have the money or the time to give. You feel that your family background is so different to the stereotype of those within the church. You've found a welcome and love within the church, but you wonder, really, how could the church ever find me valuable? What do I have to offer? What do I have to give? You wonder if you might be more there more of a hindrance than a help. Maybe you're not a Christian at all, but you're coming to church, you're you're finding out about Christianity because you hope that maybe following Jesus will help you to excel in one of those areas. Maybe you hope that following Jesus will make you a more successful business person or will give you more success in your studies or at university. Maybe you're turning up to church to volunteer to give something back to the community. Maybe you're turning up to church because you think Jesus might help fix some of the problems you have in your family. You've got troubles in your life and you wonder if Christianity might help you resolve them. What makes the most valuable Christian? Well, in Luke's Gospel today, we're going to see that the value of a Christian is not a product of how much money they have to give. It is not a result of how much knowledge they have and how they share that knowledge. The value of a Christian is not dependent on the amount of time they have to give to the church. 
It's not dependent on how able they are to do different jobs for other people. It's not dependent on what sort of background or family you have. And that becoming a Christian is certainly not a fast track to receive those things. Now, for the purposes of today's lesson, what I'm going to do is I'm going to group those things that I've mentioned and I'm going to call them earthly glories. They are earthly glories. This is what I mean. Those things, that the, the time that people have, the money that people give, uh, strong families who, who give lots of uh, service to the church, all those things we've mentioned, they are useful to the church. They are good gifts. We need money to, to do many of the activities that we do. We need people who've got time to give. Almost everything that this church does is run and organised by volunteers. Those things are useful. They are good. And we recognise that those people who do them often earn themselves some sort of reputation. They earn themselves a bit of honour, a little bit of respect, perhaps some influence. These things can bring us glory. They can either make us seem more valuable to other people or they can make us feel more valuable to ourselves. They bring us glory. But, as Christians, the glory that these things bring us is not the glory that ultimately we are aiming for. They are not eternal glory. And so I've called them earthly glories. The eternal glory that we are aiming for is a glory that will last forever. The eternal glory that we are aiming for is not dependent upon our circumstances, upon our family background, upon the money in our bank account. The glory that we are aiming for is to one day be resurrected, to live in the new creation, and to rule over earth as kings and queens. That's the glory that we're aiming for. To share the throne with Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Saviour, and our God. That's the glory that Jesus offers his disciples. Be a king and queen over creation with me. Now that eternal glory, that prestige, that dignity, that respect, is a glory that Jesus Christ already has. He already enjoys it today. All authority has already been given to him and he sits on his throne. He has received that glory from the Father. And in Luke 18, Jesus describes to his disciples the path he had to follow in order to receive that glory. Have a look at Luke 18, verse 31. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Now, in this verse, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. It's quite a curious title. It's not immediately obvious what, it, what Jesus means by calling himself the Son of Man. Surely, everybody is a Son of Man, aren't they? You need a father to be able to exist. Uh, when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, is he just referring to the fact that he's human? Well, perhaps that's one part of it. But, you know, it's just like Jesus to speak in terms which are subtle. He doesn't put himself in, in a lofty position above others. He speaks gently and subtly about himself. And he hides his true identity from people by using this term, the Son of Man. But it's not totally hidden. 
You see, this term, son of man, is a reference to a very old prophecy. Uh, Hundreds of years before Jesus came, there was a prophet called Daniel. And Daniel was given a vision by God, and he saw this. Daniel says he saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. So Daniel says he's seen one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He was given authority, glory, and a kingdom. So that all peoples, nations, and languages, people from the whole world would serve him. His dominion, his rule, is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. When Jesus talks about himself as the son of man, what he's doing is he is identifying himself with that son of man that Daniel had seen. Jesus is invoking this this idea. He's saying that one that God has promised, the son of man who came on the clouds from heaven, that son of man who gets all the glory, all the authority... That son of man who becomes a king over the whole earth to rule forever and ever, never to be knocked from his throne. That son of man, that's me, Jesus says. That's what he's doing by calling himself the son of man. And there were many Jews at the time of Jesus who were waiting. They were expectant. They were ready for this king to come. They were looking for such a person. They were looking for God's promised king. And in chapter 18, verse 31, Jesus says to his disciples, everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled when we get to Jerusalem. The time is now. That Son of Man is about to receive his glory, his kingdom, his authority. The whole world is about to bow down to him. So imagine the confusion that wipes across the disciples' faces when Jesus then tells them what is written in verse 32. Have a look at verse 32. Continuing, the very next sentence, Jesus says, he will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Are you joking? Are you for real? I thought you were the son of man, Jesus. I thought you were the one who was supposed to have all the glory and all the authority. I thought the whole world was about to bow down to you and worship you and submit to you. Where's this glory that you're speaking of? You're just talking about being mocked and insulted and spat upon and beaten up and and killed. The glory will come. Verse 32 does not negate verse 31. And verse 33, the very next sentence, Jesus says, on the third day, he will rise again. Jesus speaks about his resurrection from the dead. It's that resurrection which will become the strongest evidence that we have even today that Jesus did receive the glory of the Son of Man. The resurrection is evidence that Jesus did become king over all. But his path to receive that glory is a path marked by rejection, insult, suffering, pain and death. The road to glory is a road of weakness and humiliation. 
And this shame, this humiliation and weakness is not just something coincidental. It's not just a little aside. It's not just a a little obstacle that you've got to get over in, in, in order to get to the glory. This weakness, this humiliation is fundamental to who Jesus is and what he came to do. It's been part of the program from the very beginning. Just as there are prophets who were writing about the glory and the authority of the king who was to come, there were prophets writing about the suffering and the shame and the death that he would also suffer. In fact, had Jesus not walked that path of rejection, had Jesus not suffered and been humiliated, he would not have been glorified. Such is the importance of the humility he has to go through. His humiliation is central to his mission. And it didn't just start at the cross. It didn't just start at his trial when he began to be mocked and insulted and beaten. That's not when his humiliation started. It didn't start at the cross, it started at Christmas. When Jesus left the the safety, the joys, the purity of heaven, and he became part of his creation. He was born as a baby. Not Not as a rich baby, he wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't born to wealthy or influential parents. He was born in a stable. His first, the first moments of his life, it was laid in an animal's feeding trough. He came as the poorest of the poor, the lowest of the low. He came in order to be rejected by his own people. He came to bear the sins of the world upon his own sinless shoulders. Jesus' humiliation wasn't just a minor setback he had to overcome. His humiliation was an indispensable necessity for his mission. But the next thing that Luke shows us in the way that he recounts this passage is that this path towards glory, this path of humiliation and weakness and shame, is not just a path that Jesus, our Saviour, walks. It's a path that he invites all of his followers to walk with him. Have a look at Luke as uh, Luke chapter 18 as a whole. Look at what other accounts are in this chapter surrounding the, these little verses that we've read so far. In verse 9 to 14, you've got the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now the Pharisee, if ever there was a man with earthly glory, the Pharisee was him. He had a good uh, um, reputation. He was honourable. He was respectable. He had lots of influence in society. He was likely reasonably wealthy. He was devoted to religion. By usual standards, the Pharisee is the most valuable man. He's the man that you want to have on side, especially if you're God looking to build your kingdom. But according to the parable, which man is accepted? It's not the Pharisee. It's the tax collector. The man with reputation for being a thief. The man who is hated and despised. And Jesus ends that little parable by saying, look, whoever exalts himself, he will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself, he will be exalted. Then you get the the account of verse 15 to 17 of um, the the episode where the disciples are sort of gathered around Jesus, gatekeeping the, the access to him. And if you're a, if you, if you're a, a man, yeah, and you've got a good question, come in, come and talk to him. 
If you're somebody sick, come in. He could heal you and everybody would love that. If you're a child just wanting a blessing, no, 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 no. Keep back. Children, they're not worthy. They just take up too much time. They're too noisy. They're smelly. They're a nuisance. Get back. We don't want any children. You're insignificant. You have nothing to offer. There is no glory to be gained from you. You have no earthly glory. There is no value in you. Jesus says, let them come. Do not hinder them. Jesus also says, unless you welcome the kingdom like a child, you will not enter it. You've got to become like a child in order to receive this kingdom. And then you get verse 18 to 30, the story of the rich young ruler. And the shock value of this account is that if this rich man, the man with such earthly glory, the man with so many blessings of God, if he can't be saved, verse 26, if he can't be saved, who on earth can be saved? If the man with such wealth He's a ruler, he's got power, uh, such respect. If, if God won't accept him, if God doesn't count him as valuable, who does God count as valuable? It's not those who have wealth that God favours. It's those who are ready to give up all that they have in exchange for the glory that God alone can give. And then verse 35 onwards, you've got the account of the, the blind beggar. Everything that he has in life, he's dependent upon other people for. He sits on the street begging. He has no way to work or to earn for himself. He is entirely and utterly dependent. And yet, despite the blindness in his eyes, he's the one who can really see. He sees who Jesus really is. He calls Jesus, not Jesus of Nazareth, a very earthly term. That's the town he came from. He calls him the son of David recognising that Jesus is the promised one of God. Jesus is this king that had been promised from so long ago. He's got sight to see when others are blind, really. And yet his path to Jesus is marked by rejection and insult. Those who lead the way, notice uh, verse 39, does that mean those at the front of the crowd? Or does that mean those who lead the way in society? The most respected, the honourable, those who make the decisions. I tend to think the latter. Those who lead the way say, no, 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 Jesus wouldn't want anything to do with you. You're just a blind beggar. You're useless. You have nothing to offer. Keep quiet and shut up and stay at the back. And he perseveres. He endures that rebuke. He endures that rejection in order to get to Jesus and the glory that Jesus can offer. This reversal of position that goes all the way through chapter 18 of Luke, is one of the driving principles of the kingdom of God. And Jesus, as the king, exemplifies it in his own actions. Jesus calls his followers to humble themselves so that they will be exalted. Because Jesus himself humbles himself before he receives his glory. He is the one who suffers the greatest humiliation so that he can be the one who takes the highest place. And so for all of his followers, Jesus is teaching us that it isn't our wealth that makes us valuable in his kingdom. It's how much we are ready to give. It isn't our strengths 
or our intellect or our abilities that make us valuable in his kingdom. It's how dependent upon Christ we are. It isn't our background or our upbringing or our reputation. It's our level of humility. Now, this pattern, this principle might, for some, come as a surprise this morning. And for others, perhaps as a timely warning. If you have been sold on Christ, if you've been persuaded to investigate who Jesus is, with the promise that he can make you richer, more successful, with the promise that he can fix your family troubles, with the promise that he can make you more friends, you have been sold a lie. The glory that Jesus offers is not the glory that this world seeks. The priorities of the kingdom of God are entirely reversed to the priorities of the world in which we live. The world looks up to the strong. Jesus welcomes the weak. The world strives for wealth and success. Jesus gives up all that he has for the sake of others. The world values knowledge and insight. And Jesus welcomes the blind and the children. The world is impressed by a person of good reputation. Whereas Jesus exalts the repentant sinner. And so we must ask, to which of these sets of priorities does your religion most closely correspond Is your Christianity following the priorities of this world or the priorities of the kingdom of God? Do you do your religion in order to win the respect and the favour and the glory of other people? Perhaps in the church, perhaps in your family, perhaps in the neighbourhood. Or are you willing to be mocked? Are you willing to be insulted? Are you willing to be looked down upon for the sake of following Christ? Is your life's primary ambition centred around your family or your business or your sport or your study? Or instead, are you building up treasure in heaven? Are you willing even to give up home or wife or parents or children? Are you willing to give up the glory of this world in order to receive the glory that waits for us? In eternity. You know the priorities of Jesus' kingdom. And they're not just an optional extra for the super keen. They're fundamental to the way that God works. They're the pattern of life of the king. And so they become the pattern of life of his people. And so they're a, a litmus test. They're a check. Is your Christianity true Christianity? Are you committed to these same priorities that Jesus has? Because if you're not, then your Christianity is no Christianity at all. But let's finish with the same question we started with. Who do you consider the most valuable Christians? Who would God be most pleased to have on board in his church? Now it's tempting to consider that if you don't have immense amounts of money or time, if you don't have the abilities, perhaps like you once had, the physical abilities, the mental capacity, 
If you don't have the health to be able to serve, if you don't have the right background that seem to match so many others in the church, if you don't have these things that the world finds valuable, it's tempting to think that you don't have much to offer to the church at all. You consider yourself weak, fragile. You feel powerless and unable. You are poor. Your past is full of shame. You feel like your present is full of shame. But don't you see? The kingdom of God belongs to such as these, Jesus says. The kingdom of God belongs to the weak, to the powerless, to the unable. When you walk the path of humility and weakness with Jesus, he is leading you along that path towards glory. And the glory that he will give is a glory which far outweighs any suffering or affliction or inability that you will face in this life. It's a glory which repays many times over the losses and the humiliation you might have to suffer here today. It's a glory which exalts the lowliest and the least loved to the highest place in the kingdom of heaven. It's a glory that can never perish, spoil or fade. It's a glory kept in heaven for you. It's a glory that Jesus has already received for himself. And it's a glory that he promises to share with you as his brother, as his sister, to rule alongside him in his new creation. So don't despair of your weakness or your inability. Don't pity yourself because you can't do what you once were able to do. Don't consider yourself worthless because you don't have the same amount of time or money to offer as other people have. The principles of the kingdom of God mean that it is the weakest, it is the most dependent, it is the most humbled people who are most readily welcomed and glorified in his kingdom.